uniquely strong women on this week's Selected Shorts. My heart started to pound. I realized that I had just been given the means to walk out of my marriage. Stay with us. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Most of my history with shorts has been like you, a listener. Now I am so proud to say that I'm a fan and the host, too. Women are complicated and lead complicated lives. Of course, this has always been the case. But historically, writers haven't always seen beneath the surface. When I was young, I had a taste for old paperback books, often purchased at a yard sale, with pictures on the cover of a nurse looking off into the distance. And in that distance, she doesn't see hanging bags of plasma. Instead, she sees a guy. And by the end of the book, her passion for nursing has faded, and she goes off with the guy. I never questioned this. Now, those were crappy books, but even in the good ones I read, female characters sometimes had limited choices or else no choice at all. Of course, over time, so many writers have created wonderfully detailed female-identifying characters who aren't forced into agonizing and limiting decisions or fatally punished. On this program, we showcase three writers who've crafted stories with fully realized women characters. These characters experience the common human state of absorbing losses on the way to autonomy. First, an autobiographical piece in which an emerging writer both embraces and rejects her family. Then, in a Nora Ephron classic, a faithless husband gets his comeuppance. And finally, an order of nuns finds its hidden strength. Our first piece is by Haitian-American novelist and short story writer Edwige Danticat. It's about her struggle to become the Edwige Danticat we know, the author of such works as Breath, Eyes, Memory, Everything Inside, and Claire of the Sea Light. Women Like Us is the epilogue to her first collection of stories, Crick, Crack. It's both a celebration of her heritage in a long line of strong women and the need to detach herself in order to become a writer. Indeed, it is this quietly defiant act that the collection celebrates. The title comes from a Haitian tradition in which, as Danticat writes in the book, young ones will know what came before them. They ask crick, we say crack. Our stories are kept in our hearts. But here, crick, crack, also becomes the derisive term given by her aunts to the sound of her pencil against the page. You won't actually get to hear pencil on page as you listen to the story, but almost. The story gives the sense of how and why a person might become a writer. You can feel the power of writing in the language, but also in the fierce desire the character feels to get it all down. Not only her perceptions, but those of her foremothers. It becomes her handiwork, forbidden and necessary. To read this very personal story is the late actor Lynn Thigpen. Thigpen's credits included the television series The District, the play An American Daughter, for which she won a Tony Award, and the Playhouse Disney series Bear in the Big Blue House. And my kids and I used to love watching her on Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Women Like Us. You remember thinking while braiding your hair that you look a lot like your mother. Your mother who looked like her grandmother and her grandmother before her. Your mother had two rules for living. 
Always use your ten fingers, which in her parlance meant that you should be the best little cook and housekeeper who ever lived. Your mother's second rule went along with the first. Never have sex before marriage. And even after you marry, you shouldn't say you enjoy it or your husband won't respect you. <laughs> and writing? Writing was as forbidden as dark rouge on the cheeks or a first date before 18. It was an act of indolence, something to be done in a corner when you could have been learning to cook. Are there women who both cook and write? Kitchen poets, they call them. They slip phrases into their stews and wrap meaning around their pork before frying it. They make narrative dumplings and stuff their daughters' mouths so they say nothing more. What will she do? What will be her passion, your aunts would ask when they came over to cook on great holidays, which called for cannon salutes back home but meant nothing at all here. Her passion is being quiet, your mother would say. But then she's not being quiet. You hear this scraping from her, crick, crack. Pencil, paper, it sounds like someone crying. Someone was crying. You and the writing demons in your head. You have nobody, nothing but this piece of paper, they told you. Only a notebook made out of discarded fish wrappers, pantyhose, cardboard. They were the best confidence a lonely little girl could have. When you write, it's like braiding your hair taking a handful of coarse, unruly strands and attempting to bring them unity. Your fingers have still not perfected the task. Some of the braids are long, others are short. Some are thick, others are thin, some are heavy, others are light, like the diverse women in your family. Those whose fables and metaphors whose similes and soliloquies, whose diction and je ne sais quoi daily slip into your survival soup by way of their fingers. You have always had your ten fingers. They curse you each time you forced them around the contours of a pin. No. Women like you don't write. They carve onion sculptures and potato statues. They sit in dark corners and braid their hair in new shapes and twists in order to control the stiffness, the unruliness, the rebelliousness. You remember thinking while braiding your hair that you look a lot like your mother. You remember her silence when you laid your first notebook in front of her, her disappointment when you told her that words would be your life's work, like the kitchen had always been hers. She was angry at you for not understanding. And with what do you repay me? With scribbles on paper that are not worth the scratch of a pig's snout? The sacrifices had been too great. Writers don't leave any mark in the world, not the world where we are from.
In our world, writers are tortured and killed if they are men, called lying whores, then raped and killed if they are women. In our world, if you write, you are a politician. And we know what happens to politicians. They end up in prison dungeons where their bodies are covered in scalding tar before they're forced to eat their own waste. The family needs a nurse, not a prisoner. We need to forge ahead with our heads raised, not buried in scraps of throwaway paper. We don't want to bend over a dusty grave, wearing black hats grieving for you. There are 999 women who went before you and worked their fingers to coconut rind. So you can stand here before me, holding that torn old notebook that you cradle against your breasts like your prettiest Sunday braids. I would rather you had spit in my face. You remember thinking while braiding your hair that you look a lot like your mother and her mother before her. It was their whispers that pushed you, their murmurs over pots sizzling in your head, a thousand women urging you to speak through the blunt tip of your pencil. Kitchen poets, you called them. Ghosts like burnished branches on a flame tree. These women, they asked for your voice so that they could tell your mother in your place that yes, women like you do speak, even if they speak in a kind of tongue that is hard to understand, even if it's patois, dialect, creole. The women in your family have never lost touch with one another. Death is a path we take to meet on the other side. What goddesses have joined, let no one cast asunder. With every step you take, there is an army of women watching over you. We are never any farther than the sweat on your brows or the dust on your toes. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil, for we are always with you. When you were a little girl, you used to dream that you were lying among the dead and all the spirits were begging you to scream. And even now, you are still afraid to dream because you know that you will never be able to do what they say as they say it, the old spirits that live in your blood. Most of the women in your life had their heads down. They would wake up one morning to find their panties gone. It is not shame, however, that kept their heads down. They were singing, searching for meaning in the dust. And sometimes they were talking to faces across the ages, faces like yours. You thought that if you didn't tell the stories, the sky would fall on your head. You often thought that without the trees, the sky would fall on your head. You learned in school that you have pencils and paper only because the trees gave themselves in unconditional sacrifice. There have been days when the sky was so close, as close as your hair, to falling on your head. 
this fragile sky has terrified you your whole life. Silence terrifies you more than the pounding of a million pieces of steel chopping away at your flesh. Sometimes you dream of hearing only the beating of your own heart, but this has never been the case. You have never been able to escape the pounding of a thousand other hearts that have outlived yours by thousands of years. And over the years when you have needed us, you have always cried, crick, and we have always answered, crack. And it has shown us that you have not forgotten us. You remember thinking while braiding your hair that you look a lot like your mother, your mother, who looked like your grandmother and her grandmother before her. Your mother, she introduced you to the first echo of the tongue that you now speak, when at the end of the day, she would braid your hair while you sat between her legs, scrubbing the kitchen pots. While your fingers worked away at the last shadows of her day's work, she would make your braids Sunday pretty, even during the week. When she was done, she would ask you to name each braid after those 999 women who were boiling in your blood. And since you had written them down and memorized them, the names would come rolling off your tongue. And this was your testament to the way these women lived and died and lived again. Thank you. That was Lynn Thigpen performing Edwige Danticat's Women Like Us. I'm Meg Wallitzer. As a writer myself, I so admire her deft analogy. When you write, it's like braiding your hair, taking a handful of coarse, unruly strands and attempting to bring them unity. If her braids connect her to everyone, her pencil defies and connects her to them. She is the daughter of mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers at once eloquent and forced into silence. And it is her work that will speak their stories. Living well may be the best revenge, but writing about betrayal can also be quite satisfying. Nora Ephron's Romana Clay, Heartburn, lays bare her unraveling marriage to journalist Carl Bernstein. And this excerpt includes a gratifying moment of payback. It's got an actual moment of slapstick in it, unusual for Ephron, whose stylish humor comes from words more than actions. It's performed by someone equally stylish, the actor Joan Allen. Allen began her career with the Steppenwolf Theatre Company. Her many theater and film credits include Burn This, The Heidi Chronicles, The Crucible, and Room. Here she is to read from Nora Ephron's Heartburn. Heartburn. If I had it to do over again, I would have made a different kind of pie. The pie I threw at Mark made a terrific mess, but a blueberry pie would have been even better since it would have permanently ruined his new blazer, the one he bought with Thelma. But Betty said, bring a key lime pie. So I did. 
The key lime pie is very simple to make. First, you line a nine-inch pie plate with a graham cracker crust, beat six egg yolks, add one cup lime juice, even bottled lime juice will do, two 14-ounce cans sweetened condensed milk, and one tablespoon grated lime rind. Pour into the pie shell and freeze. Remove from freezer and spread with whipped cream. Let sit five minutes before serving. I realize now that I should have thrown the pie, or at least done the thinking that led to the throwing of the pie, several weeks earlier than I did, but it's very hard to throw a pie at someone when you're pregnant because you feel so vulnerable. Also, let's face it, I wasn't ready to throw the pie. I should add that the pie was hardly the first thing that I thought about throwing at Mark, but every other time I'd wanted to throw something at him, I couldn't bring myself to do it. Once, for example, right after I found out about him and Thelma, I'd been seized by a violent impulse, but the only thing I could see to throw at the time was a signed tonnet chair. And I am far too bourgeois to throw a signed tonnet anything at anyone. Sometime later, especially while I was in the hospital, I gave considerable thought to smashing Mark's head in with a very good frying pan that I had bought at the Bridge Kitchenware Company, but I always knew that I would never do anything of the sort. And in any case, smashing your husband's head in with a frying pan seems slightly too fraught with feminist content, if you know what I mean. Well, even now, I wonder if I would have thrown the pie if we'd been eating in Betty's dining room. Probably not. On the floor in Betty's dining room is a beautiful oriental rug, and I would have been far too concerned about staining it. Fortunately, though, we were eating in the kitchen, and the kitchen has a linoleum floor. That is how bourgeois I am. At the split second, I picked up the pie to throw it at Mark. At the split second, I was about to do the bravest, albeit the most derivative thing that I've ever done in my life. I thought to myself, thank God the floor is linoleum and can be wiped up. <laughs> On Saturday afternoon, Betty called. I went out for a walk to buy the pie ingredients. I took Sam with me. We had a long talk about how Nathaniel would be coming home from the hospital on Monday and how much Sam was going to love him and how he was going to feed him some delicious spiders. And we bought food at Neem's. It was a beautiful day. So we decided to walk down to the toy store on M Street. And on the way, we passed the jewelry store where Mark had bought me the diamond ring. And I remembered that I hadn't taken it in yet to have it fixed. It was in a little envelope in my purse. I could see Leo Rothman, the owner, sitting on a stool behind the counter, Leo, the dear white-haired man who had marched with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade in the 30s and been thrown out of the Labor Department in the 40s, was now a millionaire jeweler who buzzed only white people through his electronically operated door. He buzzed me in and gave me a big kiss. When Mark was courting me, when he was pursuing me with flowers and balloons and jewels, Leo was the man that Mark bought the jewels from. And as a result, Leo felt almost 
proprietary about our marriage. He had outfitted the courtship, the wedding, the birth of the first child, the first child silver spoon. And he didn't seem to mind that, except for the diamond ring, none of Mark's purchases had amounted to more than a few hundred dollars. I told Leo about the robbery, and he said it would just take a minute to reset the stone. Sam and I waited while he got out his instruments and went to work. We were making conversation, chit-chat, nothing much. He said, did I know the diamond in the ring was a perfect stone? I said, Mark told me that. He said it wasn't the kind of diamond I'd ever have trouble selling if I ever wanted to. He had told Mark that he would be glad to buy it back for what Mark had paid for it, and I said I was glad to hear that. He asked me how I liked the necklace. <laughs> the necklace, I said. Ah, uh, Leo looked up and the loop dropped from his eye. I must be thinking of another customer, he said. No, 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 you're not, I said. I, I, I knew Mark had bought me something while I was in the hospital. So he had bought her a necklace for her birthday. I was lying in the hospital with a tube up my nose, and he had bought her a necklace. Oh, that rascal, I said. Oh, I shouldn't have said anything, Leo said. Oh, oh, oh I'm glad you did, I said. Now I know what to be prepared for. There is nothing worse than opening a box with a necklace in it when you're not in the mood for a necklace. I kept talking. I couldn't stop. Once I said, I was in the mood for a nightgown, and Mark kept dropping hints about what he'd gotten me for my birthday, and finally I said, I don't care what it is as long as it's not a suitcase. Was my face red? <laughs> Leo was focused on the ring again. I bored him so thoroughly, he barely grunted a response. He finished resetting the stone and handed the ring back to me. It was such a beautiful ring. The diamond caught the afternoon sun and made a rainbow on the wall of the store. Sam ran to the reflection and I waved the ring this way and that, moving the rainbow while he giggled and leapt and tried to catch it in his hands. How much, I said. Oh, no charge, Leo said. No, how much for the ring, I said. How much would you give me? for the ring. Leo looked at me. Oh, you don't really want to sell it, he said. Oh, no, I really want to sell it. <laughs> I said, do you really want to buy it? Oh, of course, he said. Oh, I love the ring, Leo, but it really just doesn't go with my life. It would never have been stolen in the first place if I hadn't been wearing it on the subway. And if you've got a ring you can't wear on the subway, what's the point of having it? It's sort of like having a mink coat. If I had a mink coat, I would have to take cabs every time I'm in New York. And the next thing you know, we'd be even broker than we are now. Mark is so romantic, he probably spent every penny of his savings on the necklace. <laughs> Leo nodded for the down payment, he said. For the down payment, I said. It's a beautiful necklace, said Leo. Well, 
Now I'll have a beautiful necklace I won't be able to wear on the subway either, I said. How much for the ring? 15,000, Leo said. 15,000, I said. That's what Mark paid for it, Leo said. My heart started to pound. I realized that I had just been given the means to walk out of my marriage. 15,000 it is, I said to Leo. 10 years had passed, the cost of walking out of a marriage had gone up. I went home with Leo's check and made the pie. I was in a trance. Well, I don't know, perhaps it wasn't a trance, but it was as close to a trance as I'll ever get. I was speechless. I said nothing, nothing at all for several hours. At eight, Mark and I took the pie to Betty's. It was just us, me, Mark, Betty, and Dimitri, whom Betty lives with. When we got to Betty's, Mark and Dimitri went into the kitchen to boil the lobsters, and Betty and I sat in the living room while Betty talked about the dance that she and Thelma and I were apparently giving. Apparently, we were giving it at the Sulgrave Club. Apparently, the crep man had already been booked. Apparently, all that was lacking was my guest list. Thelma and Betty had already drawn up theirs, and apparently, the Kissingers were on Thelma's list, just as I'd predicted. I sat and listened and drank an entire bottle of white wine as Betty went on and on, and by the time I got to dinner, I was tipsy. We ate the lobsters. I don't remember the conversation. I do remember realizing that no one seemed to be noticing that I hadn't said anything the entire evening and that no one seemed to mind. I must try this again, I thought. I must try again someday to sit still and not say a word. Maybe when I'm dead. After the lobsters, I took the key lime pie out of the freezer and put the whipped cream on it and sat it in front of me. I was going to give it five minutes to thaw slightly, see recipe. And that's when Betty turned to me and she said, Rachel, you did tell me about Richard and Helen. What about Richard and Helen, said Mark. Well, they're getting a divorce, said Betty. I bumped into him this week in New York. I always hated that woman, said Mark. I sort of liked her, said Dimitri. When did you meet her, said Betty. Here, said Dimitri. Rachel and Mark brought them over one night. No one else would talk to her, so I did. She wasn't so bad. You are the only person on this earth who's ever found anything even halfway nice to say about her, said Betty. She left Richard for her secretary, said Betty. Did you know this, Rachel, said Mark. I nodded. I couldn't get over it. I kept thinking about it on the shuttle on the way home. How? Could you know someone for that long? How, how long have they been together? As long as Rachel and I have, said Mark. Exactly, said Betty. How could you be with someone that long, be married to them, and not know? Oh, he has to have known, said Dimitri. I knew. Well, he says he didn't know, said Betty. <laughs> how could he not? How could you be married to someone and not know something like that? Well, maybe it wasn't true when he first met her, said Dimitri. Of course it was true, said Betty. You don't just become a dyke bang like that. Sure you do, said Dimitri. It's like being allergic to strawberries. You eat strawberries all your life, and then one day, bang, you get hives. Oh, don't be ridiculous, said Betty. I was starting to get dizzy. 
Perhaps I ought to say something. I thought either that or I'm going to fall into the pie. Perhaps I ought to say that it is possible. Perhaps I ought to say that you can love someone or want to love someone so much that you don't see anything at all. You decide to love him. You decide to trust him. You're in the marriage, in the day-to-dayness of the marriage, and you kind of notice that things aren't what they were, but it's a distant bell. It's like through a filter. And then when something does turn out to be wrong, it isn't that you knew all along. It's that you were somewhere else. He must have been living in a dream, said Betty. She stood up to get the coffee cups. Mark and Dimitri were discussing detente. In a dream, I suppose so. And then the dream breaks into a million tiny pieces. The dream dies, which leaves you with a choice. You can settle for reality, or you can go off like a fool and dream another dream. I looked across the table at Mark. I still love you. I thought, I still look at that dopey face of yours with that silly striped beard, and I think you are the handsomest man that I have ever known. And I still find you interesting, but someday I won't anymore. And in the meantime, I'm getting out. I am no beauty. I'm getting on in years, and I have just about enough money to last me 60 days. And I am terrified of being alone, and I can't bear the idea of divorce, but I would rather die than sit here and pretend that it's okay. I would rather die than sit here figuring out how to get you to love me again. I would rather die than spend five more minutes going through your drawers and wondering where you are and anticipating the next betrayal and worrying about whether my poor, beat-up, middle-aged body with its cesarean scars will ever turn you on again. I cannot stand feeling sorry for myself. I cannot stand feeling like a victim. I can't stand hoping against hope. I can't stand sitting here with all this rage turning to hurt and then to tears, and I can't stand not talking! I looked at the pie sitting right there in front of me. And suddenly it began to throb. (laughs) They were talking about the State Department now. If I throw this pie at him, I thought to myself, he will never love me. And it hit me with shimmering clarity that He doesn't love me. (laughs) That's all there was to it. It it, it didn't matter if he was crazy. It didn't matter if I was innocent or guilty. Nothing mattered except that he didn't love me. If I throw this pie at him, he will never love me. But he doesn't love me anyway. So I can throw the pie (laughs) if I want to. I picked up the pie, thanked God for the linoleum floor, (laughs) and threw it. It landed mostly on the right side of Mark's face, but that was good enough. 
The cream and the lime filling clung to his beard and his nose and his eyelashes and pieces of crust dropped onto his blazer. <laughs> I started to laugh. Mark started to laugh too. <laughs> I must say he handled it really well. He laughed as if all this were part of a running joke that we'd forgotten to let Betty and Dimitri in on. He wiped himself off, he stood up, so did I. He said, I think it's time for us to go home. I turned to Betty, who was staring wide-eyed at the two of us. By the way, I said, I'm not coming to the dance. And we went home. Joan Allen performed an excerpt from Nora Ephron's Heartburn. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Admit it, haven't you always wanted to throw a pie in someone's face? Haven't you wanted to live by the Three Stooges code of the road? What, you haven't? That's just me, trying to keep the Larry Curly and Moe spirit alive. And what about Shemp? Who was Shemp? I never quite know. Well, Nora Ephron was a friend of mine. Smart, discriminating, and very generous. It's so great to have a chance to bring this delicious piece back to shorts. I got to know Nora when she was about to direct her first movie based on my novel. I was so thrilled. Very few people saw This Is My Life, but it's wonderful. It's about a stand-up comic, Julie Kavner, and her two daughters. Nora invited me to go scout comedy clubs with her and her sister Delia, who co-wrote the script. I was very pregnant at the time, and one night we were supposed to go to a comedy club, but it conflicted with my childbirth class. I was so scared to miss the class. I was this goody-goody. But Nora said, here, I'll tell you what they were going to teach you. (sighs) She became a great friend over the decades. She was funny and appreciative and sometimes formidable. I am certain some people called her complicated. When we return, flying nuns, or almost... You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. I'm Meg Wallitzer. We're looking at the three-dimensional lives of all different kinds of women on this show. Complicated by heritage, complicated by marriage, and in Claire Lucetti's New Bees, complicated by being defined as one thing when you know yourself to be more. Lucetti is the author of the novel Agatha of Little Neon, and they have had work featured in Plowshares, The New York Times, Granta, and Kenyon Review, among other journals. New Bees, which won a 2020 Pushcart Prize, takes place in a religious order whose older nuns are trying to find a way for a newbie, yes, that pun is intentional, to fit in. In pursuit of something to reaffirm her importance, the other nuns discover both their own strengths and why they can't always reveal them. This story shows us that sometimes dissimulation is a form of grace. 
Reading this story is Selected Shorts regular Joanna Gleason, an actor we turn to for her nuanced performances. She won a Tony for her portrayal of the baker's wife in Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods. On film, she appeared in Heartburn, based on Efron's novel, and Boogie Nights, among others, and is currently at work on The Grotto, a feature film that she wrote and directed. Here she is with New Bees. New Bees. We bought the nylons before evening prayer at a 24-hour grocery three miles away. They came folded inside paper envelopes, tawny mesh showcased under cellophane windows. We bought a dozen. They tend to rip. Later, we disagreed about whether the envelopes could be recycled. If paper's affixed with plastic, is it still paper? Eventually, we stripped the cellophane squares from all 12 envelopes and sorted the scraps. Everything has a thousand uses. When nylons run, we slip our hands inside and dust shelves, polish silver, buff our leather shoes. There's always a way to give something new life, but most people don't realize this. Most people don't want to know all the lives contained within disposable things. That spring, we wanted new bees for Harriet. They hadn't wintered well, our bees. Only a few hundred were left by the time Harriet came to the convent. She didn't know there used to be thousands, so to her, there was a bounty. She'd go out barehanded and give the hives some air. She'd coo and grin, watching them float. She was unlike us. We found them fearsome. Agatha was allergic to bees, and Mary Lucille was 73, frail as Linguini. Therese avoided pain, and I avoided anything with violent rage. The winter survivors moved slowly. They were depressed, having witnessed the deaths of their babies and their parents who had come to lie in piles at the bottom of the apiary. Ours was a humble apiary, nothing special, a dozen sheets of hanging beeswax stored in a frame on wheels. The apiary was a wooden model donated years ago. We kept it next to the baby Oreo cookie cow, which we milked for butter. We were having trouble with Harriet, it's true. She was a novice, hadn't been veiled, hadn't been given a religious name. During morning prayer, she had this look of hurt. It's not unusual. 5.20 is a painful time to be praying if you are usually dreaming then. But it was harder for Harriet than for most. She displayed none of the joy we felt, none of the love. She worried the skin under her eyes. She never had an appetite. She had a round crater on her neck where an old boyfriend had stubbed out a cigarette. So we wanted to surprise her with new bees. Many times all a person needs is somewhere to be and something to do. We used the parish computer and found an apiarist in Louisville. He bred honeybees and sold them in boxes of 12,000. When we called him, the apiarist sounded impatient. Yeah? Hello? as if pulled from pleasure by the ringing of the phone. We explained we were customers intending to buy bees. We were interested in the carniolans, tough, resistant to mites. But we had a question. How would we get the bees out of the box? We pictured a rushing swarm. We pictured quick, vengeful enemies. He explained that all we'd need to do is throw the box on the ground, wiggle free the lid, and pour out the bees. They'd spill from the box, he said, like oil. They wouldn't hurt us. 
They were merciful creatures. They'd find the apiary on their own. And the bees were safe to transport in a box in the back of a car? Yes, of course. He regularly drove with a car full of bees. They like inertia, he said, just like us. After he said goodbye, his phone hovered in its receiver, and we heard him whispering tender words. Oh, darlings, you can have my waffles, yeah. We hung up, flushed with the hot shame of happening uninvited upon an intimacy not our own. We pooled our allowances, folded the bills, and sealed them in an envelope. For the keys to the van, we went to Father Lucas in the rectory. He was watching television in blue jeans. We showed him handfuls of dead bees. We said, Father, think of the bees. Think of the flowers. His patience was cursory at best. In mass, he sped through communion, doling out wafers in rapid succession. Body of Christ, body of Christ, body of Christ. He held a curled bee in the lamplight. Its legs were kinked, but its wings were out as if it had died mid-flight. Father Lucas looked at us. Did you know people used to think bees came from the rotting bodies of dead cows? This was a passion of his, sharing unsolicited trivia. <laughs> he plucked the unspent stinger from the bee's belly and tossed it to the carpet. Bees are a worthwhile investment, he said. If we care for them right, buying new bees every year, that's an expense we can ill afford. We nodded. We told him, Harriet, the novice, she's good with him. We trust her. We stood, patient. It's best, more often than not, to say nothing rather than something. Finally, he crossed one leg over the other and spoke. Well, I don't see why you can't go and see them, but you've got to be careful driving. We smiled. We thanked him. One more thing, he called. If the van gives you any trouble, just pull off the road, call me, and wait for me to come. We left Harriet to sit the hotline. Every day we heard only from Teresa, a local woman who was on her own raising a daughter with special needs. She asked no questions, sought no advice. She often cried. We had never met her, only knew her voice, hurried and colored with apology. Harriet wanted to know how to counsel Teresa, what to say how to say it. Pray with her, we said. Listen, if you don't know what to say, wait. Wait until you know the right words. She wanted to know where the four of us were going and when we would be back. We looked at her, the hunched shoulders, the raw mouth. At 19, she was still afraid of time spent alone. She did not yet know that privacy was not a punishment, but a gift. We shook her heads and told her we could not tell her. We knew how to protect the truth, Many people don't realize that honesty can work this way, that it's possible to be candid about your candor's limits. The van was an old red Mercury villager, a donation from some parishioner whose child had long ago attempted to obscure, with the liberal use of a black magic marker, the entirety of the rear window. Back when the van was brought to us, we were able to work away much of the ink, but retired our sponges after a few rounds of scrubbing, leaving a cloudy film on the glass like lacework. The seats were matted velour and the sliding doors were trouble. They jammed in their tracks. More than once we had driven down the highway within the doors, stuck halfway open. So we were prudent. Everyone climbed in and out the front seat. 
The car made no mystery of how it felt, being made to climb those hills. The whole way it groaned with contempt. We paid no mind. Windows down, our veils trembled in the wind, and dust settled in the nooks of our ears, the bends of our elbows. We ate graham crackers straight from the sleeve and counted pale gray horses propped on the hillsides. We'd written directions on both sides of a napkin, even the tedious steps like continue. <laughs> Preparation is a compulsion of ours. We carry toothpicks and half a dozen sanitary pads everywhere we go. We sharpen pencils in groups of three. The exit was an exit only, and we slowed to take the turns at half speed. Ours was the only car, turning up wild dust, and there were no houses for miles until we turned off the paved road that led to the apiarist's house. We thought at first that we'd arrived at the wrong house. We saw no beehives in the yard, no white-suited man traipsing in the bushes, just a low house of clabbered and siding, the windows covered with sun-leached sheets of newspaper, a dark place to be raising bees, we agreed. We checked the house number against our directions. We slipped graham crackers into our pockets, turned off the van, and climbed out one sister at a time. The grass was frosted with so many dandelion heads, we bent to stroke it. He had bushes of raspberries near the road, the fruit gone squat and hard. In the treeless yard, a low plastic pool clotted with fallen leaves, and on the porch, a paint-stripped bike thrown on its side. We heard them first, the drone like a quivering siren rising and falling with no clear rhythm. And then the man opened the door, and we saw them, hundreds of bees gliding with ease around the front room. Such buoyancy they showed. They looked diving and climbing, almost beautiful, until we remembered we were afraid. <laughs> From a metal jug, the apiarist shot smoke in the air, and the bees slowed as if in obeisance. A few drifted past us through the open doorway, and we jerked with fright, clutching each other's elbows. I didn't expect the clergy, the apiarist said, seeming delighted. As he spoke, we watched a bee hover and lower itself onto his nose. These weren't raised to be God-fearing bees, I'm afraid. The bee wriggled, but the man's voice remained measured. He appeared not to have noticed. He smiled then, displaying only a half-mouthful of teeth. It's not every day I get a visit from the Brides of Christ, he said. The room was floored in linoleum, walled with slats of imitation wood and empty except for a low-hanging light bulb and a white wooden beehive, uncovered, and except for the bees. They blurred the air. Crowds of them danced over the surface of the apiary. Others came to rest on the wooden frames bordering the windows and on the apiarist's shoulders and head. The rest were set on soaring. They approached us with interest, and we shut our mouths, dug nails into forearm flesh. The bees shimmied on the apiarist's nostril and then moved on. We smiled. Uh, so the bees, then, we said, we came for the carniolans. He nodded and gestured for us to walk with him. We held hands and followed the man to the back of the house, where the bare hallway gave way to a wide room with a narrow yellow mattress, a brown blood spot on its center. He must have slept among these bees, dozed to their thrum. He rifled in a dark closet. With his back turned, he couldn't see us, frozen, trying to appear inanimate so the bees might pass us by, Mary Lucille's tiny hands gripping mine tight. 
The apiarist spun back around and assembled a cardboard box. He pulled from the windowsill a mass of bees clinging to a hunk of comb, and inch by inch, he lowered the comb with the bees hanging on into the cardboard box. We watched him slowly tip the box up over itself so it lay flat on a white sheet, trapping the bees inside. He propped up a corner with a two-by-four. So they'll tell their friends how nice it is inside the box, he said. The bees wandered in and out as if making up their minds. In uh, half an hour or so, we'll have a good three pounds of bees in there. We nodded. How many bees to the pound? In the kitchen, he served us bottled cola. He offered us pickle spears fingered from a wide-necked jar. One of us said no for all of us. This must be a kind of suffering, we thought, to be trapped inside with a million bees. It is terrible to be conscious of all the ways you can be hurt. The apiarist ate his pickles with loud snaps. Through the back door, a dog came panting, a rib-thin, bare-faced dog. His walk seemed to hurt him, but he delighted in the presence of water in his bowl, in the hands of the apiarist digging through his ratty fur. Benny boy, the apiarist cooed, crouching to kiss the dog's wet nose. That's my Benny, he turned to us. You all can pet him if you like. Agatha bent to meet his face, his breath at her, hot and hard. Bees latched to the dog's tucked belly and greasy ears, but Benny never whined, never stopped to swat or shake them loose. We watched him lick freely at the water, though several bees hung above the bowl. A loving thing, unafraid. Are you looking at his balls, the apius said. We weren't, but then we saw them and could not ignore them. Bulbous, fat, the healthiest part of him. Oh, I'm sorry, the apiarist said. He scratched his nose with a wet finger. Ball is a swear, isn't it? No, 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 don't worry, Therese said. We all sat on the floor at Benny's flank and watched him breathe. He was the kind of trusting dog who seemed not to know how bad things were. When we stood back up, we saw that bees had drowned in our cola. They looked, examined from the bottle's mouths, to be at rest. We abandoned the soda in the sink and washed the bees down the pipes. The apiarist sighed, watching them go. He told us how lousy things had been for him and the bees. Lately, his queens were laying fewer eggs. One thing about queens, he said, they don't like to be helped along. They like it to be their idea. We set our bottles on the counter, four tiny clinks. Say, girls, the apiarist said, could you help me with something in the garage? We looked at each other and held hands tight. His garage was detached from the house with a wide square pull-down door, gaping afoot. We welcomed the walk in plain, beeless air. He led us in through the side door and Benny rushed in first. There was no car or truck, only amassed disorder. Eight feet of an artificial Christmas garland studded with imitation pine cones, towers of thick, glossy science fiction novels, canned beans and corn, their tops dust-fuzzed, a woodworking bench and low table saw, an upended electronic keyboard, a dozen empty tissue boxes, a microwave. We waded in. Benny's tail upset a pile of empty amber prescription bottles and they went flying. The apiarist ignored the dog. He perched a foot on a rusted lawn chair and said, well, it beats me why a bunch of pretty girls would be interested in the clergy. We clutched more tightly at each other's palms. Mary Lucille spoke, her voice measured and firm. 
Now, what can we do for you here? And we look to the apiarist for instruction. See, I'm having trouble with that old door. It won't go down the whole way, and I get little critters coming in at night. We looked at the foot of liminal space, the threshold for escape. I'm, I'm sure if you're having trouble closing it, we won't be much use, Mary Lucille said. We're, we're not exactly brawny. He walked over and he mock-tugged on the strap hanging from the door. I don't know why it won't give, like a stuck zipper or something. We thought he wouldn't see us slipping bits of graham cracker from our pockets and letting Benny lick them up from our hands. We thought it'd be a silent gift. But Benny ate with such loud, excited smacks of his tongue, the apiarist flung around and stared hard. Oh, we just, Therese started, we, we only wanted, he raised his voice then, rage swelling in his face. You do not feed my dog without permission. Oh, that's enough, Mary Lucille said, and we felt the air shift. It was an innocent act, a cracker for a needy dog. He could have come at us. But instead, he bent to stick his hand inside Benny's mouth and scrape gummy bits of cracker from the teeth and pink tongue. Benny's eyes went shut, and he whined from somewhere deep within. We watched the man rake the dog's throat with one hand and hold his head with the other. Later, we'd recall seeing him flick the wet starch to the ground. On his face, there was for a moment tenderness, care. We collected ourselves, and then, while the man's hand was between the jaws of the dog, we fled out that side door, abandoning the bees that we had come for in the clabbered house. We hurried the van's engine awake and leapt to the curb and started to soar, and we were all feeling good, so good, feeling useful, feeling all sorts of brave and a certain kind of lucky, the kind that comes after you circumscribe danger with your own will and good sense. The wind welcomed us to a newfound speed. We smiled out the windows at fields of upright corn. But then a few miles out, just before the turnpike, we heard it. In the middle of the throughway, the car issued a pained squeal, then a snap. The steering wheel went stiff, stubborn as anything. It took all the combined might of Agatha and Mary Lucille up front to force the wheel to the right. We parked on the shoulder, turned off the car, and for a moment we neither spoke nor moved. In the glove compartment, we kept a small, heavy phone. Father Lucas didn't answer when we called, so we left a message in calm words. Hello, Father. The van won't steer. We're at mile marker 82. Please call us back when you have the chance. We sat on our hands. In our silence, we heard the whirr of rushing cars. We sighed one by one. We called again. And when he still didn't answer, we climbed out and went to look at the engine's innards. We knew a thing or two about engines, the plot of bulbs and tubes. We could point to the battery and the transistor and the fuel injector, so many places for trouble to hide. We read aloud from the manual, checked the camshaft and the coolant, walked circles around the vehicle. The car would start, but would not steer. If you look long enough, there is always something to blame. The trouble was the serpentine belt, the black strap that moves the water pump. It had snapped right in half. We pulled it free, a squirming length of rubber, and tucked it into a cup holder. With a bit of glue, it would work well to seal the gap under the convent's front door. <laughs> it was a decision we made together, in silence, confirmed with glances and nods. All at once, we shed our nylons and tied the feet tight to make a loop. 
and with tense hands, we guided the nylon over the pulleys. There was slack, we tightened it. Our fingers caught grease and soot, and our foreheads went sweat slick, but then the engine turned over, and the pulleys spun, and the nylon moved the disparate parts, and Mary Lucille pushed the wheel, and the tires did what she told them to do, and we laughed. We laughed and laughed. Amid the thick fields along the great white paved road, we had found a way to move. While we were slinging hosiery through the car engine, Father Lucas called to say he was coming to save us. The voicemail was panicked, as if it was he who was in trouble. What words had he said to us about the van before we left? If there's trouble, leave the trouble for me. Don't touch what you don't understand. No matter. Many times, the greatest mercy you can grant a man is the chance to believe himself the hero. <laughs> and so, we slipped free the ring of pantyhose from the pulleys. We slackened the knots and reclaimed pairs at random. Some of us had thicker ankles, some of us darker flesh, some of us broad bellies, but it hardly mattered the chosen mesh because our habits hung low to cover our legs. Back in the van, we waited for Father to arrive. Maybe it was selfish, our need to have everything fixed just right. Two weeks later, Harriet would leave, a bar of our lemon soap in her backpack and a paper bus map in her hand. She said goodbye just after prayer, having shed her habit in favor of denim. She took the red line bus to her aunt's house in Madeira or a cousin's place in Kenwood, we forgot which. She promised to call us when she arrived, but she never did. We spoke her name in reverent prayer and imagined her with a new haircut, a new place to go every day, or returning to some place she'd been before, an attic or back room, or dive bar, somewhere familiar but in no way safe. In time, we saw that there was no longer any faith to foster in her. She would have to create her own. The old weary bees would survive another season. They kept us stocked in clumpy wax and honey until they, over the course of one week, perished, killed by the spray we used to eliminate dandelion weeds. It is impossible to know for sure. Everything comes with a price. Nothing in this life is without sacrifice. We found their little bodies scattered in the grass, in the fig tree, and the blueberry bush. They died while seeking. They knew nothing besides their daily hums and hunts. We looked out the kitchen window and watched them flit and thought that maybe they knew fear too and valued above all else control over their work and their home and their flight. But we didn't know any of this that afternoon as we waited in our tired car, singing low hymns, watching the grass take the wind. We wanted to go home to Harriet, to tell her she was important, more important than bees. We wanted to hold her hand in prayer and hear her voice in song and make her see and know her value. We waited, we whistled, used spit and sleeves to wipe scalp smudges from the windows. The parish florist drove Father Lucas out to mile marker 82. Father came like royalty, waving out the window of a purple van. We saw their smiling faces among the bouquets, lilies pressed up against the windows, ranunculi in the passenger seat, and the waxen face of our parish pastor above his crisp collar. Oh, my ladies, Father said, stepping out of the van. What did you do? It is our belief that the greatest grace you can grant yourself is the private knowledge of your strength. We popped the hood and let him look. He shoved his shirt sleeves high, frowned into the depths. Standing behind him, we crossed our arms. 
even though we could point to the problem, knew what the van needed, we stood and let the wind upset our veils and we waited, letting him stare at the valves and hot pistons, allowing him the time he needed to conclude whatever he would. Joanna Gleason performed New Bees by Claire Lucchetti. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Nuns on a road trip, now there's an image. Sometimes we call someone complicated without really thinking about what the word means. Complicated people bring together contradictory elements. They defy expectations. They feel strong desires and express them. And the expectations for women have historically been that they won't be contradictory. They won't take risks. The women in the stories on our show aren't supposed to be angry or seek their dreams or be self-reliant, but they are. They may be complicated, but they're also much more than that. You can fill in the blanks with what you think they are, playing your very own version of Mad Libs, the Selected Shorts edition. And if you don't know what Mad Libs is, you're probably younger than I am. That's our show. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.